Good morning, Four Corners Church. It is a blessing to come to you again this morning from God's Word. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. I hope that all of you are well and that as families and gospel community groups, you are experiencing and delighting in God's grace and His presence during this time. It is such a a wonderful thing to consider throughout Scripture that God is always present with His people. And it's in times like this that we, we tend to recognize or notice His presence and His power among us, His provisions. And so I pray that that is happening all throughout the congregation. So Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Today we continue our study of the theme or thesis of Romans that Paul gives in these two verses. As I read last week, these two verses have been regarded as really the the foundation or setting up of everything that we will encounter in the epistle. And particularly what we will find in chapters 1 to 8 as we look at Paul's unfolding of the gospel. And then, of course, 9 to 11 as well as he discusses the, uh, the nature of the church and Israel, and he talks about Jew and Gentile and God's salvation plan throughout history. And then into chapter 12, as Paul practically begins to apply the gospel, all really being traced back to what he says here in these two verses, verses 16 to 17. The theme, clearly, in Romans is the gospel. The good news that Paul preaches. As Christians, this word gospel is one that we use very often. And rightly so. This is uh, the core of who we are as Christians. We are not those who rally around a, a moral code. We are not those who rally around the ceremonies of religion. Uh, or even a common shared heritage, really. What we, what we are are people who rally around the gospel. That's the center of our life together. And so it is right that we use this word gospel very often. But sometimes we can kind of toss it around a little casually. And so we maybe lose sight of what it is or what it means, or it just becomes a bit of a platitude. We know that that's a key idea, and so we just throw that word around, gospel-centered, and so forth, just very casually. But last week we saw that the gospel is not a mere word or idea or concept to be tossed around. Rather, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In other words, the gospel is God's very means for saving people. We talked about last week how all of the mighty deeds of God that we read about in the Old Testament, all of those acts of salvation were really just pointers towards this this salvation that comes through the gospel, this salvation where we are brought from destruction to glory, a 180 degree turn where God brings us from being dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath, to being seated with Christ in heaven, to being eternally glorified in his presence. God's means of saving people. So, not a mere word that we throw around empty without meaning, but God's very power. This gospel 
is the powerful message of the powerful Son of God. Going back to verses 3 to 4, you'll remember at the very beginning of our series on Romans, we looked at how Paul describes the gospel. And he first describes it in terms of its, its uh, continuity. It comes from the Old Testament. It's promised beforehand. And then he goes on to describe it as a message that concerns a person. And that person is Christ, the powerful Son of God, or the Son of God in power. So it's interesting here, we see that the gospel is the power of God for salvation because it presents to us the powerful Son, the Son of God in power. Power language everywhere here in Romans and throughout Paul's letters and throughout the New Testament. And really, this gets to the prayer that I have for my own soul, for my family, for our church family. The prayer that I have for all of us is that we would really trust in the power of the gospel. And and this is something that I think we would all affirm. We would affirm that we trust the gospel, but how we relate to it, how we saturate our lives with it, the extent to which we share it, the confidence we have when we share it, All of those things demonstrate whether or not we really deeply believe, as Paul did, that the gospel is God's power unleashed on the earth. And so my prayer for us as a church is that we would really believe that. We would believe that this is God's powerful message. And that the good news for us would become truly good. And I hope you're seeing here that the extent to which the good news is seen as good is the extent to which the good news is seen as powerful. If we do not see it as powerful to save, powerful even to create faith in those who hear, then we're not going to really see it as that good. Its goodness is attached to its power. All of this is interconnected. So pray earnestly. As you memorize parts of Romans, as I hope you are, and as you sit through these sermons, as you take notes, above all, pray that God would convince you for your own soul and for those you know of the power of the gospel for salvation. You will remember from last week that I told you there is a tight logic at work in verses 16 to 17 that reaches back to verse 15. It's one of the reasons that interpreting Paul, teaching Paul, uh, preaching Paul is, is sometimes so difficult, is there's a, there, every single word or phrase must be dealt with in its own right. And the relationship between the phrases are so significant that if you just go in and you just preach this idea and that idea and that idea without regard to the structure or the logic, then you miss Paul's meaning. Very easily. And so as I said last week, there is this tight logic. And we see this from the repetition of the word for. Which could also be taken as because. So in verse 15, Paul tells the Romans that he is eager to preach the gospel to them. Why? Verse 16. Because he's not ashamed of it. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And once again, as you would expect, we need to ask the question, why? In other words, as Paul's unfolding this, he wants us to be like our children. 
He wants us to be, or he anticipates that we will be like kids, asking the why question over and over again. And so he's linking each of these with an explanation. Why? And Paul tells us, again in verse 17, the gospel is powerful to save. Why? Because of what it reveals or makes known. Do you see that? You have to see that logic. It is powerful because of what it reveals or makes known. And that's what we're going to spend our time looking at today, focusing on verse 17. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Glorious Gospel Part 2. And let me just reiterate something that I said last week so that we don't miss this logic. I don't want you to simply see the logic to help us understand what Paul is saying here in verse 17. I want you to see the logic so that you can uh, trace the logical path back to eagerness. Now, hear what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we all desire, and we have held out for us in the Bible, the need to be eager to share the gospel, the need to be eager to get the message of Christ out there to other people. But we have more or less eagerness in our lives. Sometimes we, we are not very eager, and sometimes maybe we're more eager. How is it that we heighten or increase this eagerness? Paul is answering that question for us implicitly by the logic. This is how we get back to eagerness. We have to see what the gospel reveals and through that understand that it's powerful and through that not be ashamed of it and through that we'll be eager. So here we have a prescription for gospel zeal, which is what I pointed out last week. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. Short passage for us today, a lot different than uh, when we were going through Genesis, those 40-some, 50-some, sometimes 60-some verses. Uh, Here we have just two to look at, which is typically the case with Paul. There's so much meat packed in to just a single phrase, especially a, a verse or a paragraph. So let's look at verses 16 to 17 together. This is God's Word, perfect and profitable for His people. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You can go ahead and be seated wherever you are. And let's go to God in prayer, ask for his blessing. Let's ask that he would uh, show us here clearly what is shown in the gospel. And that through that we would trust more in its power. Through that we would have a deeper understanding of our own salvation. And let's pray that this morning as this sermon is heard, that God would be pleased to use it to save. That he would be pleased to use it to save maybe some among us who are under a, a, a false idea that they're saved, and maybe they're not, and God exposes that through this very sermon on this text, or those maybe who would be hearing, people in your family, your friends, people who would stumble upon this on the internet, 
that God would use this sermon on this very special passage to save sinners. So let's go to God and ask for that now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Christ. The gospel which was promised beforehand through your prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning your Son, descended from David according to the flesh, this powerful Son of God, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This gospel, this gospel that holds Christ out, this gospel that by Christ, through the ministry of the Spirit, saves sinners. Father, we pray for our own souls and our minds that we would understand more deeply what the gospel is and the power of it and what it reveals to us. That we would take hold of the gospel and appropriate it for our own souls. That you would increase our assurance of salvation. Increase our rest in your fatherly care and in our justification before you by Christ, through Christ. That you would increase our zeal for sharing this gospel in our homes and to our neighbors in our workplaces, wherever we go. And Father, we do pray right now that you would use this sermon through this text to save sinners. God, that you would be so merciful as to transform hearts, to to bring faith, to reckon righteousness by means of this sermon being preached now. God, we thank you for your word and we recognize its power. And yet, Lord, we are humbled by the fact that we don't even, we haven't even begun to understand the extent of its power. Our hearts and our minds are often darkened. We're dull-minded. We're distracted. We lack faith and confidence, just as the disciples did often, as we read in the Gospels. And Lord, we every hour need your grace. And we need your grace now. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would be overseeing this preaching and overseeing the hearing of this. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Paul continues in verse 17 to provide the thesis statement for his letter, as he sets up the letter with this theme of the gospel, There are two final aspects of it that we need to see this morning. So these are your two points. I know that uh, in our house, our our seven-year-old son, Jake, he will uh, start asking pretty early on what the points are and have to tell him, just hang on, wait, we're going to get to the point. So here we are. These are the two points for today's sermon. So here they are, the revelation of a gift and the reception by faith. The revelation of a gift and the reception by faith. Very simple. This is what we find here in verse 17. Last week we saw that this gospel is without shame, without weakness, and without exclusion. Verse 16. And now we see the revelation of a gift and the reception by 
faith. So first, let's look at the revelation of a gift. Look with me at the opening words of verse 17. Paul says this, For in it, in the gospel that is, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. We have to take a breath right there. We have to stop. There's so much packed into that. So let's stop and let's just camp out there and consider what it is Paul is saying. The language Paul uses here helps us to understand why the gospel is called the gospel. I mean, have, you ever, have you ever thought about that? Why, why is it that it is called the gospel? And we've talked about that before, about it being good news. But here we find out why it is called good news. News, why it is called this in the first place. And that is simply, it is news. The gospel is, by its very nature, news. It communicates something. As Paul says here, it makes something known. It is a message to be heralded in order that that making known might take place everywhere. It is a, hey, guess what? kind of thing that needs to go to the ends of the earth. To peoples all over the world, we go and we say, hey, guess what? And we declare the mysteries of this wonderful, glorious gospel. This is a gospel that God has revealed first in history. So we have to root it. This is a gospel that was revealed in the first century In Palestine, it is rooted in history. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time, sufferings of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now notice that. Just as our future state of glory will one day be revealed to us, one day we will We will know, it will be made known to us, our glory. That state of glory, just as that will happen, for now the gospel that leads to that glory has been revealed to us. And every single time, this gospel of God, that God has revealed in history, every single time it is shared or taught or preached, it is laid open to the hearer. So we understand this revelation really in both of those senses. It, it's revealed in history in the first century in the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. But it is this revealed thing, this revealed message is laid open to the hearer every single time the gospel is shared. In other words, the revelation comes to people through proclamation. There is the revelation in history that comes to people and has come to people all over the world through proclamation. So Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15, probably a text you've read before or you've heard quoted before. He says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear 
without someone preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so here we see that the message of the gospel that has come needs to be preached. It needs to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, to our neighbor, to our coworker, to that person who sits across from us at Starbucks or Chick-fil-A or wherever else, to our children in our home. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But let me just stop for a moment and, and draw out an application. Yes, it is true that all of us are called to this gospel work, this gospel proclamation. But I think we should at least consider, as we just pause here for a moment, that this is also a call for paid gospel workers. And let me say what I mean by I love that phrase. That was a phrase that I had heard for the first time at uh, the church we were a part of in, in Scotland when we lived in Edinburgh, a church called Charlotte Chapel, a very healthy, vibrant, uh, gospel-saturated, word-based church. We were so grateful to have found that church, and, and the impact that that church had on our lives for the four years that we were there is just incalculable, uh, as my wife and I oftentimes talk about. But one of the phrases that was used constantly there as they were training up pastors from within the church and sending guys off to seminary and doing internships and other things that, that I very much hope in the future we can implement here at Four Corners. But they used this idea of paid gospel workers. And that is to say, yes, everyone should be sharing the gospel everywhere. But there is the need, as we find in the New Testament, for paid gospel workers, meaning those people who give their lives to this gospel ministry, to gospel vocation. Those who set aside other kinds of employment and get their livelihood and their pay to support themselves and their families by means of the gospel, the gospel work. And so let me just throw out to all of us here, maybe that's what God is calling you to do. Regardless of how much money you make in your current job, regardless of how useful you may find yourself to be there, regardless of the gifts and skills that God has, has, has clearly affirmed there, maybe, just maybe, God is calling you to give up that employment for this other gospel work. I think that's something we should all consider. This is something that we've seen recently, and I don't think he would mind me saying this, but this is something we've seen recently with Trey, who, whom we brought on as an associate pastor. He was uh, moving along in his other employment, and as he was going to seminary, uh, taking classes part-time, increasingly experiencing that call of God on his life, he, he walked away from that to take on a position here and be paid by the church, a paid gospel worker. This is something I witnessed growing up as a kid with my dad. He was very active in the church, but for the first 14 years of my life, he worked for a company called GTE, which later merged with another company to become Verizon. And that was my life as a boy growing up. I wasn't a, I wasn't a pastor's kid really uh, growing up. As a kid, my dad worked for a company, and, and that was very much the norm. But when I started high school, my dad became a pastor. He walked away from that, and he began to be a paid gospel 
worker. Maybe God wants to proclaim this powerful gospel through you walking away from that work to another. So would you pray about that? Would you ask the Lord about that? But what exactly, as we think about the gospel revealing, what exactly does the gospel reveal? What is laid open for our hearers when we share the gospel? Specifically, what is it that is made known? Answer, very simply, the righteousness of God. Well, if that phrase just sort of blows you away, it should. What a massive idea. I mean, what, what exactly does that mean? The righteousness of, the righteousness of God is, is revealed, held out, made known in the gospel. And that's why it's powerful. That is the specific reason why it is so powerful is because of what it makes known. So what does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? Well, our minds probably go first, naturally, to God's attributes. God's attributes. Just as we speak of God's power or God's holiness, maybe here we have God's righteousness in view. So the righteousness of God is, is taken as something God possesses. Uh, the power of God, God's possession of power, His power the holiness of God, that holiness which is of God, which God has as part of his nature, and the righteousness which God has. We know God is righteous, of course. And this does appear to be what Paul has in mind in chapter 3, verse 5. As he uses the language of righteousness there, he says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, dot, 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 and I won't get into specifically what he's saying there, but the point is that in that verse, clearly Paul is referring to an attribute of God, God's righteousness. So let me tell you, well, let me first say this. It doesn't seem to be the case that that is what Paul is getting at here or in most of his references throughout Romans. So in other words, what Paul is saying in Romans 3 verse 5 righteousness of God, they're an attribute of God, does not appear to be what he is saying here in chapter 1, verse 17, and throughout the book of Romans. So let me tell you what I think Paul is saying, and then give you some references just to back it up, to show you how this is playing out in Paul's letters, in Romans and elsewhere. When Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed, he means the righteousness from God. Not an attribute of God here in this instance, but righteousness from God. The righteousness that God gives. The righteousness of God. And for those of you who are into grammar, this is God is, is in the genitive, and a genitive can be interpreted so many different ways. So it's not just the righteousness of God must mean the righteousness which God possesses. It very much can mean the righteousness from God that God gives. So here are the texts that I give to support that. Romans chapter 10, verse 3. When Paul there is speaking of unbelieving Israel, he says this, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God 
and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So you see there, God's righteousness or the righteousness of God is contrasted with seeking to establish our own righteousness. Implied there is the righteousness God gives as opposed to the righteousness that we bring forward from ourselves. Romans 5, verse 17. Here Paul calls this righteousness the free gift of righteousness. Clearly there, the righteousness is something given to someone and then Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. And that's the reason I, I had Mark read this passage for us today is because Philippians chapter 3 really is one of the best parallel passages for understanding what Paul is getting at here with the righteousness of God. By the way, I recognize that some of this is a little tedious, so please just hang on with me. There, there really is no way for us to, uh, to just skate over this. We have to dig down a little to understand exactly what Paul is saying. So Philippians 3 verse 9, Paul's desire is to be found in Christ. Now listen to this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And then listen, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So clearly we are talking here about a righteousness that God gives to us in contrast to our own righteousness of works. That's what Paul is saying, is revealed in the gospel. So we understand that what is revealed is a gift. A righteousness that God gives us. But what does this righteousness mean? So we got to go a little bit further. We have to go a little bit deeper. We understand what the revelation means, how that works. We understand what the righteousness of God is, not an attribute, but something that God gives. Not an attribute of God, but a gift from God. But now what is righteousness itself? The basic idea of the word is being in the right, as you would think. Being in the right or being justified. When we uh, talk about it's all from the same root to to justify be justified uh, righteousness it's the, it's all from the same root being justified but later we learn that this righteousness that god gives to us is listen to this counted to us it's reckoned to our account we are declared Righteous. This is the language of the law court. What is being specifically talked about here is not a righteousness that God gives us such, such that we become perfectly righteous. Such that now God looks at us in ourselves and he sees us moving about and living our lives and he says, look, look how righteous he or she lives. We're not talking about that. We're talking about righteousness imputed to us that cannot be taken away, that cannot be removed. When we falter and when we sin, it holds. It's the language of a judge saying, justified, guiltless. Romans 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and listen, it was counted to him as 
righteousness. Now we read Abraham's narrative after chapter 15. Paul's quoting Genesis 15. And we read Abraham. We see his sin. We see the things that he does even shortly after that. The Hagar incident and lying about Sarah. We see his sin. He's not perfectly righteous. We do see the life of God, the righteousness coming out from his life as God has worked in his heart and shown him favor. But what is in view here is a a righteousness that is given to Abraham's account such that he is righteous before God's face. Romans 4, 6. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So what am I saying? Let's come out of the weeds a little bit. What am I saying? This is the language of imputation. Sorry to give you another huge word, but imputation. We are impu- righteousness is imputed to our account. We are reckoned as righteous, counted righteous in God's sight. As one commentator puts it, this is an acquitting and not an infusing. We are given a status before God, and that status is righteous. Praise God for this. This is amazing. When we consider what this means for our lives in moments of weakness and sin, that a Christian, whether in strength or in weakness, whether he or she is living the Christian life in a way that he or she is pleased with, or whether he or she is struggling down in the dumps and crying out to God, righteous. That is God's verdict. That's what Paul is talking about here. We will see more and more clearly as we go through Romans that this righteousness that is imputed to us is the very righteousness of Christ. Let me give you a couple more verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, at the cross, a transaction took place. God took our sin and he imputed it to Christ's account. Now listen, Christ did not become sinful. Christ was never sinful. So that righteous, that, that sin was not imparted to Christ as though, as though Christ's soul, Christ's mind was turned over to sin. Christ remained perfectly pleasing to God on the cross. He never sinned, but reckoned to his account was sin. And God treated Christ on the cross as the vilest of sinners the world has ever seen. And because of that, Christ's perfect life, his perfectly obedient death on the cross, his righteousness is imputed to our account. He gets our sin. We get his righteousness forever. No one can take that away. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 
You are in Christ Jesus who became to us, listen, Christ is to us, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is. He is our righteousness. We don't stand before God in something, in some idea. We stand before God in Christ. He is righteousness to us. Christ is our righteousness before God's face. United to him, clothed in his perfect righteousness. Praise God. That is what it means to be a Christian. If you are truly a Christian, that is your status. Today, it was your status yesterday. It will be your status tomorrow. It will be your status on your deathbed. Whether you are filled with painkillers and are cognizant of your passing. Or whether you are grumpy in the moment of your passing. Whether you're grumpy now and unkind now. God counts you righteous through Christ. Not yours. It's his. And the reason... This is such good news is because we are all sinners. We are all un, unrighteous before God and have absolutely no way to undo that. We are fully guilty before God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6:23 For the wages of sin is death. We have a predicament. The predicament is before God we are vile. Before God we are sinful. And because of that, the verdict is guilty death. The verdict is guilty, the penalty is death. Physical, spiritual death forever. And yet the gospel says, the gospel says, the gospel you believe, Christian, the gospel you share with your children, the gospel that you talk to your neighbor about, your coworker about, the gospel that, that is preached and taught, this gospel says that God has revealed, made known, disclosed through Christ the one way to be cleared, pardoned, acquitted before his judgment seat, before his holy eyes. That is amazing news for sinners. The gospel is only good to us as we realize how holy God is and how unholy we are. Maybe the gospel is not very sparkly, not very magnificent, not very glorious to you, Because you really don't understand how truly holy God is and how truly vile you are. And I am and all of us are. We misdiagnose ourselves. We give ourselves a pass. We justify our sin. So how does one come to receive this righteousness from God. And that turns us to our second point. So we've seen the revelation of a gift, and now we come to the reception by faith. Look at the rest of verse 17. This righteousness, Paul says, is from faith 
for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We have already seen in verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to who? To everyone who believes. And this is exactly what Paul says here. But even more emphatically. In other words, this has already been introduced to us. What we're going to see here in a moment, we've already seen, is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But now Paul wants to burrow down into that a little bit more. And he wants to make so very clear and emphatic that it is by faith. This righteousness comes by faith alone. From faith for faith, or by faith from beginning to end, or from first to last, as the NIV translates it. And this is a very difficult expression. From faith to faith, or for faith. It's many, many commentary notes have arisen as a result of this. But I do think that is what is being said here. It's, it's from faith. It's faith from first to last, from beginning to end. It's a faith period. All together. From and to faith. Paul is driving this home because the human tendency, your tendency, my tendency, the tendency of our children, the tendency in all religions, even in the Judaism of his time, is to try to obtain righteousness by one's own efforts or works. That is the tendency. We are idle factories and we are self-justifying people from the beginning. We are selfish by nature, prideful by nature, rebellious to authority by nature, idol worshipers by nature, and self-justifying by nature. To use the language of chapter 10, verse 3, to establish our own righteousness. That's what human beings are doing. We set up our own standard of rightness, which falls short of God's perfect standard, and not just a little short. It doesn't just, it's not like, oh man, if I could get about two more feet, I could grab hold of it. I'm just an inch away. I I got another mile to go. No, 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 no. Falls entirely short. So far short that it's incomparable the righteousness we have to God's righteous standard. We We set up our own standard, which falls short. And then listen to this. Then we go out and we live imperfectly to meet even our own standard. So, so that much more, we don't even meet God. We don't meet God's standard, but we don't even meet our own standard of righteousness. We are filled with contradictions. We are filled with duplicity. We judge another for doing the same thing we did five minutes ago and we'll do five minutes from now. We don't even live up to our own standard of righteousness. We set up our own standard, we strive in our own strength, and then we justify all of our failings. All of our lack of love for God, lack of love for neighbor, all of our self-seeking, all of our lusts, our pride, 
We justify it all. That is the human condition. We make God in our own image and pretend as though he will accept us. I want to say something to you very clearly, non-Christian. God will not accept you when you die. God will not accept you. When you die, you will see the extent and depth of your sin and you will feel the weight of your sin in eternal judgment. Separation from God. He will not accept you. It's not going to work out. It's not as though what you did last week in helping someone is going to somehow cover over the bad things you do. This is self-deception. You're enslaved to this deception by the evil one. Hear the gospel which tells you it's not true. We don't recognize how rebellious and wicked we are, how deeply rooted our sin is in our hearts. I mean, sometimes as Christians, we see this, we see ourselves, God gives us a, a view deeper into our hearts and we're just disgusted. Oh no, that's inside of me. And, and it's connected to this and to that and to that. Woe is me, we say before God. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The web and the depth of sin. We can never get it all out. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart. Evil from his youth. How deeply rooted our sin is. And how holy and just God is. He will accept nothing less than perfection. You need to hear that. Because this is the biggest misconception. Is that God will just look and he's... The, the God's caring nature, his love, his fatherly care, sometimes begins to suggest for people in the world that God is so permissive. That, that as long as you got more of this, more good than bad, God's going to look at the good and he's just going to sweep away the bad and he's going to say, well, that's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. You need to forgive yourself. It's okay. That's not what God says. That's not what God does. God requires absolute, total, unadulterated, spotless perfection. Period. Perfection. Only perfection pleases God. And I'll say this. That means that your petty good deeds will amount to nothing on the day of judgment before God's judgment seat. In fact, the Bible teaches us that our efforts at good deeds are themselves, listen, are themselves generating all kinds of sins of self-righteousness and pride and idolatry that our good deeds themselves are packed with so much storing up of wrath that God will pour out on us for those very good deeds embedded in them as idolatry. It's the opposite of what you think. Self 
deception. Only perfection. And that is why it is so wonderful. So wonderful when we read in the Gospels that God is pleased with Christ. That is why it is so great, so good, so glorious. Matthew 12 verse 18, quoting Isaiah 42. My beloved, the Father looking at his Christ, looking at his precious Son. And he says, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Oh, there is somewhere where God finds that perfection that, that we need. There is somewhere on the earth where God looks down and he sees one who pleases him, one who is righteous, one who is perfect, and it's Christ alone. And what Paul is saying here is that the gospel reveals this free gift of righteous standing before God to be received by faith. We don't earn it with our work. We trust in Christ's work. We don't give something back to God. We trust in the God who gave Christ. Romans chapter 3. Verses 24 to 25, Paul makes this explicit. We are justified or counted righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I love this part. This has been a source of much meditation for me and and just trying to just understand the depths of this. I love this part. He says this, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward... As a propitiation by his blood. In other words, Christ's sacrifice, giving of his blood, satisfies God's just wrath. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. To grab hold of that. God has put Christ forward. There he is. He's he's bearing sin. And through that that death, through that sacrifice, God's wrath is taken away. And then we, we receive this. We take hold of this by faith. We trust in it. We trust in it for everything. It's our only life. It's our only hope. And as Paul finishes... He quotes one of the prophets, Habakkuk specifically, to substantiate the gospel in the Old Testament, to show that it was promised beforehand, chapter 1, verse 2, and that the Old Testament bears witness to this gospel, chapter 3, verse 21. What the Old Testament saints anticipated and looked forward to, we have Clearly revealed in the gospel. That should make you want to go and share that gospel right now. Just just hit pause. Hit pause because you can right now. And go and share that gospel with somebody. It has been clearly revealed to us. Now Christ is put on display for all to see. We look back and we see him there dying for sinners. We see him there becoming a propitiation for our sins. We see him there laid in the tomb, raised from the dead. We see him there preached in Palestine and beyond. Put on display for all, both Jew and Greek, both you and me. 
Paul, he's going to say much more about this theme of justification in his letter. This is really just an introduction. He's going to define it and unpack it, particularly in the first four chapters. He's going to have so much to say about what justification is. And in chapter four with Abraham, we're going to be able to look at the details of what faith looks like, what faith is. So we have much more to come. But I hope you understand at least this. The gospel reveals the righteous standing we can have before God by faith through Christ. And that is the best news you could ever receive. And that is the most powerful message on the planet. Do you trust him? Have you received by faith this one who was put forward as a propitiation by his blood? Are you a Christian? Will you trust him? Will you call out to him now and ask him to have mercy on you like the tax collector? I am a sinner. Have mercy on me, God. Through Christ, look away from yourself to Christ. By faith, we are justified before God, not by our works. Don't say in your heart, tomorrow I'll do better, because you won't. And even if you do, it won't matter. Christ has done perfectly, and it is only His perfection that God receives. The righteousness of Christ imputed to your account is your only hope. The righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, all the depths of the gospel, it's so simple and yet so immensely profound. Father, would we believe it in its simplicity and would we seek to understand it in its depth? God, would you be with us as a church? Would you work in the hearts of Christians to really believe in the power of this gospel and to really believe that before your face we are righteous in Christ. God, what freedom, what joy, what assurance, what power, what motivation is found in the word of the cross. Help us, Lord, feast. As Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Would we live by the word of Christ, the message of the biblical gospel of Christ? Father, we pray for those among us who are unconverted or others we know and love who are unconverted. God, would you give us boldness and confidence and joy Precision in proclaiming this gospel, knowing that though we may be mocked, 
though we may be laughed at, shunned, pushed away, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And you will save some. You will save some. Just as you have saved us. We give you praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.